So anyway, uh, we're going to start this new series called Ladies First, and I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time. I need to get out in front of something, though. Um, we're going to talk about like the uh, incredible role that women have had in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and in his ongoing ministry in the church. Um, but I want to get out in front of something and say that, that I probably shouldn't have done this in July because in July we have difficulty like staffing things and planning things and stuff like that. And so I walk in today and I realize it is like an all-male up front this morning. Um, our one woman singer, April, this morning uh, isn't feeling well. So um, the, I don't want you to read into this. Um, it's... A, Gene, can you bring me down a little bit? I'm getting a little bit of a bounce, and it's, it's, it's really bothering me, and I won't be able to continue. <laughs> um, thank you. So I just want to please don't take this as a statement that it's all men up here. Maggie Romano led worship. This is just for those of you newer to Polaris who don't realize that, that um, women are, are on the stage often, and I look forward to having Debbie Wentz and up here during the sermon series and things like that. So I just wanted to get out in front of that. Okay. Now, with a cringeworthy, awkward opening few minutes out of the way, let's talk about uh, ladies in ministry and in church. Uh, one of the things that I've seen in, in my life in ministry, now Polaris Christian Church is a part of the what's called the Christian Church, Church of Christ, the Restoration Movement, and it's generally speaking pretty conservative. And uh, uh, one of the things that, that I noticed early on is that there is, in, in conservative churches especially, there is often a lot of pain um, inflicted on women uh, by things that are said and done and believed and restrictions and things like that. And, and that's because women's roles in ministry... Uh, and, and women, uh, their involvement in the church, based on how we interpret scripture, um, can bring about a lot of controversy. So I just want to, I don't want to get into much of that this morning, because this isn't really a sermon about women, women uh, in ministry. Uh, but I want to talk about that controversy, because it's a good chance for me to give an approach that's helpful for me in dealing with controversy and that, you know, based just kind of um, seasonally where we're at in this country and in the world with all the controversy that's out there, I think this approach to dealing with controversy can help in a lot of areas, but it certainly applies to women in their role in ministry and in, in God's work. So let me just real quick kind of talk about three views from the Bible of women in the church. And then we'll talk about applying this approach to how we can maybe have conversations about it or other controversial topics without increasing uh, tension. Because there's, this, there's a scripture in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, agree with one another and live at peace. Now, <clears throat> depending on your personality type, that might be really hard for you to think of how, how, what do you mean agree with one another when we're obviously going to have different views. But I think what Paul's saying is like whenever possible, just set the smaller things aside and learn to make some compromises in the way you approach each other and talk to each other so that you can live in harmony. And so this is an approach that helps me in things like women in the church 
in things like homosexuality and gender stuff and other very controversial views, this is a system <clears throat> that helps me talk with people about controversial things in church and even in politics. So let me, uh, let me talk about some views of, of women in the church to kind of use it as a, as a case study in this approach to conversation about controversial things. So the first view that we come across is often called the authoritarian view. And it's largely based on several scriptures similar to 1 Timothy 2.12, which is a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Men don't nudge your wives. Um, some people apply this to all churches everywhere and believe that even now, in 2023, <clears throat> this is a timeless scripture. It is not cultural in context. And therefore, in those churches, uh, women could never be up on stage Women can't teach a co-ed Bible study. Um, women can't lead worship. Women can't sing. Women can't hand out communion. Women cannot be perceived in any kind of a leadership role over uh, any man because of, of scriptures like that. I had a friend in college who, who, was, um, who was of this authoritarian mindset, and he said, because Paul says, um, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, that means that women can't even pray out loud in church. And so that is, that is a view, and there are some scriptures that certainly um, seem to point to that. So that's the authoritarian view. Now, the next view uh, would be called the uh, complementarian view, and it, um, uh, it has to do with um, <clears throat> the idea of completion. So think in terms of, of um, gender roles are unique to the gender to complete each other, but it's not an authoritarian view. Like, it's not that men have authority over women. It's that men need to do some things, and women need to do some things, and they complete each other. So, very similar to how the Trinity works. Um, you would have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the traditional Christian Trinity, each with distinct views. There's not necessarily an authority kind of hierarchy thing, um, they complement each other. So that's the, uh, that's the complementarian view that says that um, men aren't superior to women and women don't have to be in submission to male leadership, but there are differences in the gender views. And then there's a spectrum on all these. There's a spectrum in authoritarian. There's a spectrum of how you want to, uh, how people interpret complementary. And then the final one would be egalitarian based largely on several verses like Galatians 3, that, which says uh, there is neither, essentially neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And the idea there is that, is that the categories of leadership are gone. There's men, there's women, and they're equal and able to do anything in the church that anybody can do based on their gifting and qualifications and things like that, not based on their gender. So there's a spectrum of, um, of all of those views and the different nuances of how you might interpret those. But those are the three basic ways that people approach the Bible and then apply it to church leadership. Now, uh, I don't want to you know, 
define any of that further. There's no need to go into which one is right or wrong or more right or more wrong. What I want to talk about is a way to talk about those things with each other <coughs> that could bring about progress and, um, and uh, friendship uh, in unity in, instead of divisiveness. And let me just say that this is not like a problem at Polaris. Like Polaris is not a divisive place and we don't, you know, whatever. Um, um, we don't like have this, this issue brewing. This is not to address anything specific. but So let's think in terms of camps, and let's apply this beyond women in ministry and to all kinds of controversial things. This is just a great way to categorize this and talk about things where we disagree. So let's say uh, Camp 1 would represent the most conservative. So I'm going to put this my left side, which is your right side. We'll put Camp 1 over here on the right. And Camp 1 speaks like this. I've studied the Bible, and I am an authoritarian. I believe that men rule over women in church, and need to, women need to be completely silent in church, and you should too. If you're not, you're wrong. If you're not, you're lying. Whatever. Um, Kate, do you need me to do anything up here? Is this a serious thing, or is this... What's that? Fremels. Anyway, um, oh, are you there? They, they're up. Tiffany's up there. Um, sorry, I didn't know whether it was like a four alarm thing. Um, doesn't appear to be. So um, over here on the right, conservative view. I've studied the Bible. I believe that men rule over women in church, and you should too. Now, don't look into that. That's probably a mean way to say that, but for brevity's sake, okay. Camp four. The more progressive camp over here on the left is I've studied the Bible and I'm an egalitarian. I believe that men and women are equal and can do anything and you should too and you're wrong if you don't and you're mean if you don't and whatever. So you see you got camp one are the evangelists of I believe this and you should too. You're wrong if you don't. Camp four, I believe this and you should too. You're wrong if you don't. Now, <clears throat> let's go to camp two. So camp one, camp two. Camp two says... On the conservative side, I've studied the Bible, and I'm an authoritarian. But if you study the Bible, and you're not, that's fine. Let's keep studying and learning together. See the difference there? Between like camp one of, and you should too, and you're a liar if you don't, and you're perverting the scriptures, and whatever, whatever. It's a different approach. It's, I'm, I'm deeply convicted by this. But if you've studied the Bible, and you aren't, then let's keep studying and learning together. And then camp three would be, I've studied the Bible and I'm egalitarian, um, but if you've studied the Bible and you're authoritarian or you're complementarian, that's good. Let's, let's just keep studying and learning together. Now that for me, and I wish I could say I, that that's not like original to me. Um, I was actually a gathering of pastors discussing some controversial stuff, and, and that approach was brought up, and, and I've used it ever since, and it's really helped. And even in politics and science and things like that, if we were to say, well, I've studied what I know to study, and I've concluded this, but if you've studied what you know to study, and you've concluded, let's just keep learning together. And that enables us to keep in relationship and respect each other. Now, of course, there are Camp One things. At Polaris Christian Church, the resurrection of Jesus, 
That's a camp one thing. Like, you can't look at the scriptures and conclude anything else. Paul says if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. And there's no other reasonable scripture, like, to say that it was a metaphorical uh, resurrection or anything like that. Yeah, that's a view, but we would be camp one with that. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and you should too. But with so many of these other things, you can use those camp two and camp three languages and go a long way to, to keep in relationship and, and learn together. So I just wanted to, you know, I've been sitting on that for a couple years, and, and it's just something that, that I think in, in these controversial times that we live in, if we're going to truly, in the spirit of Paul, agree with one another, even though we are deeply divided in a lot of our thinking, that presents a kind of language that we can all use um, to continue to learn and grow together and respect each other while we may disagree with some things. Okay, now, let's move on to talk about um, women in Jesus' ministry, because what this series is going to do is, is look at a few different case studies and, and character studies, uh, but what I want to talk about today is, is a group of ladies we see in Jesus' ministry uh, who represent some amazing firsts. But what we have to do is we have to put ourselves in, um, in the mindset of an ancient listener because so much of the scriptures are, are, are nuanced to where it doesn't necessarily cross all the I's and dot all the T's and you know, bullet points for us. We have to take in the story like an ancient reader would and in the details there are these volumes of, of teachings and, and, and uh, assumptions and, and sometimes, sometimes subversive, sometimes sly, uh, but that's where the scriptures really come alive. So let's start <clears throat> with one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I know that I say that about just about everything that I talk about up here, but this is in John chapter 4. It's called The Woman at the Well. And um, while I typically encourage <clears throat> everyone to read along, um, I'm just going to, for time's sake, I mean, you're welcome to grab a Bible in front and, and follow along, but I'm not going to wait on you to find it. I'm going to move forward. So, um, Jesus, <clears throat> my voice is cracking like... <clears throat> my preteens when I had them through the house. <clears throat> my baby's going off to college in six weeks. Um, yeah, John 4, talking about Jesus. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, <clears throat> and Joseph, or in Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
So, a lot of assumptions in here that we could gloss right over. Uh, This was a Samaritan. Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Uh, This is a woman. Jews, Jewish men typically would not talk to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman, that they had no connection with. Now, in uh, an in-between conversation, because we're going to skip forward a minute here, in an in-between conversation that I'm not going to read, Jesus talks to this woman, tells her that he understands that she has lived a colorfully sinful life and also has been rejected time and time again by husbands. And then he says, and then it says this, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It cannot be overstated the significance of this moment and the fact that it is a Samaritan woman who is a part of this moment. Women had very little standing. Their testimony did not count in Jewish court. Now, the Romans were a little bit more progressive, but Jews were not at the time of Jesus. And and the fact that Jesus doesn't just go around willy-nilly announcing himself as the Messiah. Sometimes when somebody asks him, he'll kind of affirm it. But rarely does Jesus say, I am he. This is early in his ministry. This woman is in all likelihood, and certainly in the scriptures, and especially John's gospel, she is the first person Jesus directly tells that he is the Messiah. The first person to be told about the hope of the world by Jesus about himself was a woman. And this was a woman of poor standing in the religious world. And racially, she had nothing going for her either in that society. It is extremely significant in the context that the Bible was written in. It is no coincidence. And the... The fact that this story was included in that detail, we could easily, in this modern world, gloss over the significance that Jesus chose a woman as the first person that he would tell directly, I am the Messiah. I am everything that Israel has been waiting for. I am the hope of the world and the hope for our future. Now, This woman would have never, and this is important for all of us, this woman would have never been included on like the inside track of a spiritual conversation. She was an anybody in society, a nobody, you might say. She had nothing going for her. And yet Jesus chose this woman who was also a Samaritan, which were considered like second-class citizens at best, to announce who he was. Extremely significant moment in the gospel. So I'm going to move on down to 27. 
Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. This detail isn't essential in the story. It's included for a reason. No detail is wasted in the Gospels. It was a Samaritan woman who was essentially the first evangelist, the first person to go and tell people the good news of Jesus was a woman. In that day and time, while we may skip over that, it is essential to pick up on that detail that, that, that this is included, that, that it was like Jesus blessed the gender by allowing this woman to be the first on the inside track and by her being the first to go and tell. Because, listen, and this is another little detail. What happens when men kind of figure out who Jesus is? Jesus tells them, just don't tell anybody. But this woman is allowed to go and tell. So there's just some significant things in this story that are broken open in terms of any kind of, uh, you know, it, it just I know that so often religion and Christianity is seen as an oppressive force for women. But what I want you to see is in Jesus' ministry, it was not like that. All right. I'm going to move on to Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> After this... Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. So, like, you know, the remember this was written uh, and, and often spoken well after the church was on its way. So, like, the apostles that are leading the church, the, the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Mary, Mag Mary Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, and uh, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. It is insane that this story is included in something meant to like lift up the ministry of Jesus. Think about that in an ancient male dominant culture because there's still some stuff. There's still some stigma in the world today when the man isn't the breadwinner. I'm good with it. <laughs> Those of you who know my wife. Um, um, but back then, to say, yep, this ministry is funded by a bunch of women. Like, like that detail didn't need to be there. And yet it was included. Luke went out of his way for people to know this ministry was funded by women. And these women were allowed to travel around with the twelve. So as first Christians in the early church after the resurrection of Jesus are reading this. They see that it's not just about the twelve men. Actually the whole thing started with women who were allowed to follow along who also paid for the thing. Pretty incredible liberation of women in these details. All right. Um, 
let's uh, do one more. And I'm going to use two accounts from the same moment. <clears throat> very famous passage of scripture. I hope you've heard it. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Now, <clears throat> be honest with you. In the four Gospels, the details of the resurrection are fairly sketchy, which stands to reason that a few different people are giving perspectives from one of the most shocking moments in the history of the world. There's some details that are a little bit fuzzy from that day as to what exactly happened when. They all agree that the body was gone, that it was announced that Jesus was alive. But what I want you to see is one of the details that they all agree on, all the Gospels agree, that the first people to find out that Jesus was alive was women. And those angels could have told anybody. But they told the women to actually go and tell the men. The women were the first to know. It's extremely significant in that ancient culture. That It's groundbreaking in ancient culture that the angels chose women and not men to be the first to get the message. And trusted them to go and tell the men. Now, one more. John 20. Now Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The risen Jesus appeared first to a woman. In John's gospel, the first person to recognize Jesus as the Messiah is a woman, and the first person he appears to as risen Jesus is a woman. It's an extremely significant detail. And there are other stories like it. Like these little details are included that may, we, we may gloss over, but in the first century, you don't miss that point. Now, so what? Why does any of this matter today? I mean, we're past some of that. Uh, what, what's it do for real life today? Well, first and foremost, um, for me, this is the most important thing, and it's not directly applied to any given gender. 
in terms of the historical reliability of the Gospels and the historical likelihood of the accuracy of the Gospels. These are not details you would include if you're making up propaganda. Historians agree this was first a religion, first a faith meant to convert Jews. Like that was the first audience. And if you are trying to convert Jews with the gospel narratives, you do not give women such a high position in them. You don't have the whole thing funded by women. You don't have women entrusted to go and tell men. And what literary critics agree is that little things like this, which would make for such lame propaganda, point to the historical reliability of the Gospels, and that's extremely important. The second thing is that I hope we can all see, because, I mean, we're all, in some ways, spiritual outcasts, rejects, nobodies. And some of us in society are the same. And some of you have been rejected by family and all kinds of things. We know what it's like to be second-class citizens. That's who Jesus chose. That's who Jesus included. Time after time after time in the scriptures, Jesus reaches out and includes the second-class citizens, the people nobody invites in. That's who he includes. Now I'm going to invite the band back up and I have a closing thought for you. Um, One of the reasons I think Jesus included these ladies is because they were willing. They were willing to believe, they were willing to follow, and it was actually because of their second-class status in that society. And in some cases, rejection and spiritual failures. They weren't distracted by things of the world. They didn't have the opportunities. They didn't have the advantages or the privileges. They really had nothing. And a lot of times, we in suburban America, like our eyes just aren't open because we're distracted with careers and we're distracted with opportunities and we're distracted with stuff. And so our eyes aren't open to the things that God sees in us and the things that God would call out in us. We're busy doing other things. These women, their eyes were open and they were able to see God in the flesh when he was in front of them because they weren't running after a bunch of the things that we typically run after. So what I'd love for you to do is, is, is stand with us. We're going to do one last song and, um, and take time to... Invite God to open your heart, aside from the distractions that the suburban life puts at us, open your eyes like the eyes of those ladies were open to see him 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes just like these amazing women uh, saw you and knew who you were and responded to you. In Jesus' name, amen.